All right. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 22, but we're going to be giving particular attention to verses 21 and 22. While you're turning there, um, we are here this morning celebrating both the incarnation of our Lord and the resurrection of our Lord. Or, that is to say, we're celebrating both Christmas and the Lord's Day together. So, I thought about how we could possibly cover both these concepts together in the sermon today. What I landed on was a text that is actually, conveniently, also relevant to much of what we've been discussing in Ephesians. So it kind of just fit right into place. In Ephesians 1.10, we read that God's plan from all eternity was to unite or summarize all things in Christ. Or another way to render it from the Latin is that His plan was to recapitulate all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Now if that word recapitulate is unfamiliar to you, one scholar helpfully explains, quote, Recapitulation is an English form of recapitulans, the Latin translation of panacephaliosis, which means final repetition, summing up, drawing to a conclusion. As a term in rhetoric, it refers to the end of a speech when the speaker drives home the point with a summary of the strongest arguments. End quote. With that being said... Let's turn now to our text. And again, we're going to pick up in verse 12 for context, but we're particularly looking at verses 21 and 22. So 1 Corinthians 15, picking up with verse 12, it says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Let's pray with me. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for this passage of Scripture particularly. We pray now that you would open up our understanding, help us to know what you are saying to us, your people, through your word. Get our human weakness out of the way and help us to worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture says, 
that by a man came death. And if that was not clear enough, it says that uh, in the very next verse that in Adam all die. Of course, this is not the way God designed His creation. In the creation narrative in Genesis 1, we read over and over again that God created and He saw that it was good. God created and He saw that it was good. And over and over again we see this. But death is manifestly not good. How could it be that God created everything good, but now... Death exists, and in fact, we don't know anything other than death in our context. To understand how death entered through this one man, Adam, we need to understand what happened prior to death's entrance into the world. After God had created the sun, the moon, and the stars, after He had brought forth the land from the sea and filled both with the living animals, He made His greatest creation, humanity. And I'm not being arrogant in saying that we're His greatest creation. The Bible says as much because it is humanity alone that is made in the very image of God Himself. That's what makes us the greatest creation. We're His image bearers. We read in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Notice how these verses are worded. They do not say that man is made with the image of God, as if it is part of what we do as humans. It says man is made in the image of God. In other words... The image of God is not something man possesses. The image of God is what man is. We are the images of God. You've heard the saying, to err is to be human, implying that it is an essential feature of humanity that we're not perfect and we make mistakes. But that's not necessarily true. Prior to the fall, there were no moral imperfections in man. So the true essential feature of humanity is that we're the living images of our Creator God. We also see that God created these living images of Himself for a purpose. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's command to humanity here is twofold. First, we go fill the entire world with God's images. God made humanity as a complementary pair. He made them male and female, both in His image. While the ways in which we complement each other are certainly more than merely sexual, both nature and Scripture tells us it is one of the primary ways We complement each other. Among other reasons, God made us male and female was for the purpose of procreation within the context of the covenantal family unit, namely marriage, which has the cumulative effect of filling the earth with God's images. 
God did not make this an optional thing for mankind in general. Now, that's not to say it's not optional for some. Christ talks about there are those that God gives the gift of singleness to. That is a thing. But I'm speaking in general terms for humanity right now. It's not an option. <clears throat> we are to fill God's world, God's creation, with God's image. He said in no uncertain terms, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with godly offspring. The second part of the mission is for mankind to date to take dominion over the earth and all the animals living thereon in the sky, sea, and land. Mankind is to rule over the earth as God's vice-regents. So taken together now as one mission, God's image bearers are to fill God's creation with His image and rule over and direct it to the end of glorifying God. The next thing we need to understand is well stated in our confession. Chapter 7, section 1 of the 1689 London Baptist Confession says this, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto Him as their Creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part which He has been pleased to express by way of covenant. The Catechism for Young Boys and Girls catechism that we recite every morning or every Lord's Day morning I should say defines a covenant simply as an agreement between two or more persons that's correct as far as it goes but further explanation is necessary because it could be assumed that the two parties are equals if we settle with that definition and nothing could be further from the truth so in his systematic theology Louis Burkhoff explains quote all God's covenants are of the nature of sovereign dispositions imposed on man. God is absolutely sovereign in his dealings with man and has the perfect right to lay down the conditions which the latter must meet in order to enjoy his favor. Burkhoff continues, God graciously con uh, condescended to come down to the level of man and to honor him by dealing with him more or less on the footing of equality. He stipulates his demands and vouchsafes his promises, and man assumes the duties thus imposed upon him voluntarily and thus inherits the blessings. Now with this in mind, I believe the best definition I have found of a covenant is that offered by Wayne Grudem. <clears throat> Grudem defines a covenant in this way. He says, A covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. The covenant God made with Adam and his posterity is often referred to as either the covenant of creation, the covenant of life, or the, what I normally call it, the covenant of works. We read in Genesis 2, 15-17, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There was a righteous law of the covenant given, which was composed of the law of their creation, and a positive command or law given that they were forbidden from eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Or that is to say, they were given the natural or the moral law, which was later summarized in the Ten Commandments, and then further summarized by Jesus, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And they were given a positive law, particular to this covenant, which was that they were forbidden from eating the tree, from the tree uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. Obedience would have merited the reward of eternal life. Transgression of the covenantal law would merit the penalty of death, not only for Adam, but for his posterity as well, because Adam was the federal or the covenantal head of this covenant, meaning that all of humanity was encompassed under this covenant, under the headship of our father, Adam. In his wonderful little book on Baptist covenant theology that we discussed a lot in our uh, uh, series on the confession on Wednesday nights, Sam Renahan explains this. He says, quote, God covenants with a federal head on behalf of a specific group of people. Federal headship is therefore immediate. All those whom the federal head represents are connected to the federal head directly, which is why we call it immediate, no matter how far removed by time or genealogical descent. Their right to the covenant and its blessings or curses flows exclusively and directly through and from the federal head. So in this case, Adam was made the federal head for all humanity save one. We'll get to that in a minute. If Adam would have kept the covenant... He would have merited eternal life, not only for himself, but for his posterity as well. Dr. Sam Waldron states that the covenant of works was to bring Adam to a higher existence than that in which he was created. But we know how that turned out. The serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, deceived the woman such that she partook of the fruit And then Adam, who was not deceived, took the fruit from the hand of his wife, and he ate also. And the scripture says, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked. So the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sin entered in. And the first effect of it was to create alienation between man and God. They hid themselves. Adam and Eve knew they had sinned. They knew they had broken the law of the covenant. And they knew that God, who is holy and just, would surely carry out His justice. So in fear, they ran away from the communion they once enjoyed with Him, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid themselves in fear. God then pronounced curses upon mankind and then he drove out the man and his wife and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, Adam and all those in him were sentenced to death, our access to the tree of life now being taken away. Adam and Eve, now being sinners, produce sinful offspring. I made the point a few weeks ago. When dogs breed, they produce dogs. When cats breed, they produce cats. And when sinners breed, they produce sinners. 
So it stands to reason. And Adam and Eve have offspring after they fall into sin. Their offspring are also sinners. King David understood this well when he wrote, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He understood that after the fall, something of the image of God in us was corrupted. It's still there, but it's damaged. It's not pristine as it once was before. Now Adam's posterity are by nature children of wrath, as it says in Ephesians 2. Or, as one of my favorite theologians, R.C. Sproul, puts it, quote, We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. By our fallen nature, it is who we are now. The Scriptures condemn all Adam's posterity as sinners under the curse of sin. Scripture says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All in Adam were spiritually dead. We are spiritually dead and we physically die. We see in all this that God is not unjust in our suffering. We have brought this upon ourselves by our own sin. God would have been just to consign us all to an eternity in hell. But he didn't do that. Instead, he made a promise to mankind in the midst of the pronouncement of the curse upon the serpent who deceived the woman in the first place. He said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what does all this have to do with Christmas and the Incarnation? <clears throat> well, this was the promise of a second Adam, being the seed of the woman, not the man. This was the promise that he would succeed where the first Adam had failed. It was a promise that he and his people would be at war with Satan and his people. And it was a promise that in the end, the second Adam would do what the first Adam should have done. Namely, obey God and crush the head of the serpent. It was a promise that the second Adam and all in him would conquer all his enemies. This was the promise of what we were talking about at the beginning the recapitulation of humanity in the seed of the woman to come. Now, I offered a definition of that term earlier, but perhaps it would be helpful to offer another one here. This one comes from encyclopedia.com because we don't actually use the book anymore, right? Um, It says, quote, In Pauline theology, recapitulation refers both to the headship of Christ over his body, the church, and to the unity of all things, the whole cosmos, under Christ. The mystery of redemptive recapitulation is not simply the repairing of a plan that had gone wrong in the fall of man. Even before the world began, all men and indeed all creation were preordained, predestined for the incarnation of the Logos. In taking up again the substance of the first creation, Christ recreates, renews His creation. 
He came unto His own. As man, He is not only head of the church, but also king of material creation and keystone of the universe. In place of the earthly man, Christ, the heavenly man, has come to lead humanity back home and with mankind all the cosmos. End quote. For as by a man, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All creation fell under a curse because Adam sinned. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. But God says, Behold, I am making all things new. Or again, I am recapitulating all things in Christ. And the Holy Spirit says to the Apostle Peter that an essential part of the Christian hope is that according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In other words, God is creating the world anew and in such a way that only righteousness will dwell in it. And since all humanity in fallen Adam is inherently sinful, nothing less than the recreation or the recapitulation of man could bring this about. How does God accomplish this? Our confession explains, quote, Man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. And when God converts sinners and transforms them into the state of grace, He frees them from their natural bondage to sin and by His grace alone enables them to will and to do freely what is spiritually good. God is not under any obligation to enter into covenant with His creatures in the first place. He's God by virtue of the creator-creature relationship, we are obligated to obey Him without a covenant. So how much more is He not under any obligation to make a covenant with creatures of the dirt who willingly and purposely rebel against Him by violating His law? God would have been perfectly justified if He had destroyed Adam and Eve at the moment they sinned. Likewise, he would be perfectly justified to leave us in our sins and the punishment due to them. Yet, it was pleasing to him that he should show mercy and grace to his chosen people through Jesus Christ. We've read in Ephesians that it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. 
God purposed that in Christ he would take rebels deserving the fullness of his just wrath and make them his adopted sons and daughters. He would restore the image that was damaged. Because of sin, Adam hid himself and was alienated from God. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I've used this quote enough lately that before too long you are going to be able to recite it from memory, but it's so good that I'm going to share it again. Maybe you will recite it from memory. J.I. Packer summarizes this point well when he says, Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. This could only be so because God makes a new covenant with the elect, which is mediated by the God-man. He had to be a man. The God-man, Jesus Christ. We read it earlier. John begins his gospel with these amazing words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then we skip down to verse 14 and read this equally incredible and perplexing statement. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Since it was in our covenant head, Adam, that we fell, nothing less than a new covenant with a new covenant head could save us. Such a person would have to be truly human or he could not be a federal head to us. Again, as Renahan states, all those whom the federal head represents are connected to the federal head directly. Their right to the covenant and its blessings or curses flows exclusively and directly through and from the federal head. By man came death, so only by man could come the resurrection of the dead. Scripture says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It was human sin that incurred the wrath of God, so it must be both human obedience and human sacrifice that ultimately makes atonement with God. Remember what Jason taught us, atonement at one minute. Again, Scripture says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And in Christ we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace. And Christ, the good shepherd himself, said, I lay down my life for the sheep. Christ, the God-man, offered himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for the sin of his people. And he had to become one of us to be able to. Now it might seem obvious to us Protestants 
who put a lot of emphasis on the penal substitutionary atonement made by Christ, that a sacrifice whereby our sins are transferred to another and punished is necessary. And so it is. We could never atone for our sins by our own merits. That said, Christ's perfect sacrifice for sin alone is not enough for us to be justly declared righteous because the remission of sins simply brings us back to a place of neutrality. It just takes away sin. It doesn't give us a positive righteousness. We need a positive righteousness to be justly declared as righteous. And we just... Uh, and we, we see that uh, we receive this just that in, in God's act of justification whereby he imputes Jesus' perfect righteousness to our accounts and our sin to Christ when he was punished for our sins on the cross. As Paul writes in his second epistle to the Corinthians, For our sake God the Father made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And to the Romans he writes, For as by the one man, Adam's, disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man, Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. As as Renahan states, The new covenant is a covenant of works already kept and mediated in Christ to an elect people. This is what grants it the name, the new covenant of grace. Whereas Adam failed to keep the covenant of works, Christ succeeded and by grace through faith alone imputes his perfect righteousness to his people through faith in him. That is why scripture says God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God does not overlook sin. He punishes it in Christ. And God does not withhold the rewards for covenant obedience. Again, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And we receive these blessings because we have been joined to Christ as our new covenant head by faith alone. As wonderful as it is that we find justification by faith alone in Christ alone, restoring our relationship with God, This is just the beginning of the blessings that are ours in Christ. Scripture says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then the next verse says, For we are His, that is the Father's, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. That is, God the Father recreates, or again, recapitulates man in and through Christ. Through our union with Christ, not only is our sin taken away, but we become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus did not come merely to save us from hell. He came to save us from the curse of sin in its entirety. And bring us to a higher existence, as Waldron stated. Lewis Burkhoff explains again, Justification removes the guilt of sin and restores the sinner to all the filial rights involved in his state as a child of God, including an 
and eternal inheritance. Sanctification removes the pollution of sin and removes the sinner ever increasingly in conformity with the image of God. <coughs> so in other words, our justification on the grounds of Christ's righteousness alone is a legal declaration which alone gets us into heaven. But sanctification is the moral purification of the sinner which increasingly makes him inherently holy until the day of its final completion when we are perfected in glorification. It is a gradual restoration of the image of God in man. The image was corrupted when Adam sinned and it is renewed and restored in Christ. Scripture says, Christ is the image of the invisible God and he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature. And Jesus himself said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus perfectly images the invisible God, and for those joined to him by faith, he is our new covenant head, and in fact, he's more. He is the head of a renewed humanity. Scripture also says, for those whom he, that is the Father, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn, or that is the preeminent among many brothers. This was God's plan from the beginning for the glorification of his son. This was not plan B since plan A with Adam failed. This was God's plan and purpose from the beginning. All things were created through him, that is Christ, and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Once we are regenerated and justified, God begins a process of progressive sanctification, whereby we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, and in Christ we put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Later in the same chapter as our main text, in verses 45 through 49, so this is 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49, we read this. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual... Uh, yeah, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. God through Christ... And by His Spirit is restoring the image of God in humanity, in us, who have been joined to the man of heaven by faith. The ancient church father, Irenaeus of Lyons, I will say I think he kind of took some of this a little too far. But nevertheless, that doesn't mean we chunk out the good. We just take the good and chunk out the bad. So Irenaeus of Lyons explained it this way. Quote, for it was for this end that the word of God was made man, 
And he who was the Son of God became the Son of Man, that man, having been taken into the Word and receiving the adoption, might become the Son of God. For by no other means could we have attained to incorruptibility and immortality unless we had been united to incorruptibility and immortality. But how could we be joined to incorruptibility and immortality unless first incorruptibility and immortality had become that which we also are? so that the corruptible might be swallowed up by incorruptibility and the mortal by immortality, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And likewise, another early church father, the great defender of the deity of Christ, Athanasius of Alexandria, writes, What else could God possibly do, being God, but renew His image in mankind, so that through it, men might once more come to know him. And how could this be done save by the coming of the very image himself, our Savior, Jesus Christ? The Word of God came in his own person because it was he alone, the image of the Father, who could recreate man after the image. In other words, the Word was made flesh so that he could live the righteous life that we have failed to live die the death that we deserve to die, and thereby affect the recapitulation of humanity under himself as its new head. Now, <clears throat> you will recall that just a few moments ago we talked about this mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve that had the goal of filling the world with his images. That too is renewed in Christ. Our resurrected Lord commands us in this way. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Just pause right there for a moment. Wouldn't we expect as much if the Father's plan was to unite all things in heaven and on earth that that's the authority that would be given to the Son? But that's just an aside. Anyway, he goes on and says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The command that creation was for Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, fill the world with God's images. The great commission given by our resurrected Lord, the command at recreation, is meant to fill the world with God's restored images who are made after the image of Christ. Again, that command is twofold. There is a command to multiply, in this case, make disciples of all nations. And there is a command to take dominion, in this case, on the basis of Christ's all-encompassing authority, teach all nations to observe all Christ's commands. On this point, I would like to offer an additional word of encouragement. You really think Christ would give a mission to his church and base the success of it on his own authority only for it to fail? Of course not. Christ taught us. He taught us to pray for God's kingdom to come. We've been going over this, right? He taught us to pray for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, would Christ teach us to pray for something he knew would never be granted? Of course not. Jesus promised he would build his church 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we've gone over this before too. Gates are a defensive mechanism. So Christ used imagery that depicted us being on the offensive in our evangelistic efforts, and successfully so. He was not unclear in what he commanded, and he promised to be with us as we work. So we have no excuses and even better, no need to fear. We are to confidently be about the business of evangelizing and discipling the nations. Again, Scripture says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news! But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the final thing I want us to consider in our time together this morning. In Christ all are made alive. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He came to propitiate the wrath of God against us. He came to provide us with the positive righteousness we need as we stand before the righteous judge of creation. He came to restore the image of God in us. He came to turn rebels into children of God. He came to bring us abundant life with him now and for all eternity in a renewed humanity. Or what scripture simply says, he came to destroy the works of the devil. Consider the reward to which we look forward. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John wrote these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. This is the hope to which we look forward. Jesus said, This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. 
Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to cling to these promises today and always, whether in good times or bad. This world which is passing away is not our eternal home. We, along with the saints of old, look forward to the city which has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We have every reason to face this fallen world with confidence and hope that God is sovereignly directing all things for the good of His people unto His glory. This, this is the good news that we celebrate at Christmas and on the Lord's Day. Isaiah wrote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And the angel commanded Joseph, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus means Yahweh saves. Taken together, Yahweh saves saves us from our sins by becoming flesh or taking on humanity and dwelling among us. By His incarnation, He is able to atone for our sin by His propitiatory death on the cross. We see what results from the incarnation of Christ in the next verses following the text that we have been considering this morning. If you'll look there at the next verse, starting in verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. May we celebrate the incarnation of our Lord today and every day. Through it we have new, abundant, eternal life as sons and daughters of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, I don't even know how to put into words what a wonderful blessing this is. that you would send your son he would come from heaven in all of the glory and splendor of heaven and then he would come down here and he would become a helpless baby to identify with us and he would grow in this world of sin righteous as he was that he would confront the world with its sin and predictably, the world would hate him and kill him and all of this to save us. But Lord, we are thankful for that and we are most thankful that he rose victorious over death, hell, and the grave and that in him we are truly free and we are free to live for you. Help us 
to worship you. You are worthy. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.